Welcome, everybody, to the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's new podcast on China and Indo-Pacific. And I'm joined by my co-host, Misha Oslin, the Pace and Treat Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution. Misha, say hello to the listeners. Hello, listeners. <laughs> and we are joined by really a great guest today. We're lucky to have him. Uh, professor Rana Mitter at Oxford University. He's a professor of the history and politics of modern China. He's also the director of Oxford's China Center. And many of you probably know him because he's the author of two great books, I think, on uh, China. The most recent one was China's War with Japan, 1937 to 1945, which for some reason in the United States was published under a different title, The Forgotten Ally. And then he has an earlier book, Bitter Revolution, China's Struggle with the Modern World. Uh, Professor Mitter, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And I'm going to hand uh, initial questions over to Misha because he's just been chomping at the bit, uh, emailing lists of 20, 30 questions that he wants to ask you. And then I'll come back and ask my few, few lonely questions at the end. So Misha, take it away. Thank you, John. Uh, and once again, Rana, welcome to uh, the podcast. John John may have said that uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek uh, that I had 20 or 30 questions, but uh, it, it's true. Um, I think anyone who has read Rana's work, uh, first of all, knows that he is one of Britain's leading young public intellectuals. He is regularly uh, hosting radio shows and doing television and doing public debates uh, and has written widely, uh, not just the books that John mentioned, but other books on uh, all of of these topics related to China's engagement with the world. Uh, and it's a particularly propitious moment, uh, Rana, to talk with you because we're in the middle of two extremely important anniversaries in modern China. Uh, just last week or so, I guess two weeks ago, we passed the centenary of the May 4th movement. And in two weeks, we are going to observe the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square incident or the Tiananmen Square massacre, depending on which side of the issue you come down on. Um, you've written widely on this. And in fact, uh, one of your earlier books, A Bitter Revolution, uh, which was published in 2004, if I may note, the same year that my first book came out, uh, is this sweeping history of China through the 20th century, but viewed through the lens of the May 4th movement. So I'm wondering, maybe just to start out, if you could talk to us a little bit about what was the May 4th movement? Absolutely. And Misha, it's a huge pleasure to be able to talk to you and John here this evening. Uh, I have to apologize for the fact that despite the title of your podcast, I'm of course sitting in the relatively backward environs of the northwest tip of Europe. I think we can still say <laughs> we're in Europe, at least for the, uh, the moment. So I apologize for the fact that the warm waters of the Pacific are a long way away from where I am, but I'm kind of visualizing them in my mind as we, uh, as we chat today. The May 4th movement – this is one of the most evocative phrases you can use to any educated Chinese. And yet it's a phrase that means very little to most Westerners, except, of course, those like uh, the two of you, I'm sure, who are very well informed about Asia matters. And to explain what it means, just before I give a little detail, I would use it in the same sort of way this date as explaining to someone what the 60s means. In other words, when you think of the 60s, well, you, Mish, I know, think immediately of sex and drugs and rock and roll. You know, you're not thinking about the... <laughs> you know uh, me know, too well. 
I'm afraid so. Let's get that out there. In other words, you're not thinking about the literalism of 1960 to 1969. And May 4th does refer to an immensely important date in modern Chinese history, the 4th of May 1919. But actually, it means much more than that. It means a whole era when China turned to itself and started free thinking, thinking about new ways of doing politics, new ways of having personal relationships, new ways of engaging with the world. And the May 4th era, broadly defined, lasted in its original form some way from the mid-1910s to the mid-1920s, but its echoes and its legacy have continued to be very important throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. And we'll talk later, I know, about what that legacy is, but let's just briefly touch on what that date meant. Why should that date have been so important? Well, again, you don't have to know much history to know that the 4th of May 1919 was just a few days after the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, the Paris Peace Conference, very much on our minds in terms of the anniversary this year, of course, but not usually associated with China. And put very briefly, China's government at the time, which was run by militarist leaders, often nicknamed warlords, had basically signed a deal. They they had sent their... um, delegates to the Paris Peace Conference alongside Lord George, Woodrow Wilson, Clemenceau, and the other figures who are perhaps more familiar to to, to Westerners, and basically signed off. And the reason China was there was that many people don't know, but it was actually one of the allies in World War One. Something like 100,000 Chinese workers went to the Western Front, digging trenches, working as laborers um, on the battlefront, not actually in combat, but very, very close to it. And as a result, the Chinese government had hoped that some of the German colonial possessions in China, which had been seized by some of those terrifying figures, the Kaiser Wilhelms, the Bismarcks of this world in the late 19th century, that those would go back to China after the war was over. And in fact, that didn't happen through a series of skullduggerous moves. In fact, those territories were handed over to Japan, who had done their own negotiation with the Western powers. So when this news got back to Beijing, to China's capital, that in fact, the Treaty of Versailles had essentially deprived China of those territories, which it felt it ought to have got back, this sent one particular community into an absolute rage. And that was China's young patriots, young intellectuals, particularly young men and women studying in and around China's fledgling but very, very impressive universities, Peking University, uh, perhaps most prominent amongst them. And on the 4th of May, 1919, a group of these students, maybe 3,000 or so of them, made their way to the center of Beijing, to the front of the Forbidden City, the Tiananmen, the Gate of Heavenly Peace, and demonstrated their against what they called the warlordism from within and the imperialism from without that was, as they saw it, destroying China, and instead asked for the prominence of two characters that they wanted to put forward, Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy. I have to add just briefly that off the back of that, they then made their way to uh, the house of one of the Chinese government ministers and kind of trashed it and kind of trashed him as well. There is a report contemporaneous at the time from one of the students saying that his fellow students basically beat this poor guy so badly with uh, the the end of a bed knob that he actually had round marks all over, over, over his skin like fish scales, pretty, pretty violent sounding stuff. But they were in mm. the end, they, he didn't die. In the end, they were excused uh, by their elders 
for this particular act because of their patriotic enthusiasm. And this demonstration, this set of acts, the demonstration and then the trashing of the minister's house on 4th May 1919 marks the incident that symbolized a whole new wave of patriotism, nationalism and new thinking about how China should engage with the wider world. Now, Rana, in in the the midst of of this, of course, um, we're only in 1919. Uh, China is only eight years out from the revolution, which had toppled the Qing dynasty, which which had ruled since uh, 1644, and and it was the end of 2,000 years of dynasties. It was uh, a failed republican state at that point, but this cultural moment was extraordinary, flourishing amidst. The, the political ruins, and it was something that was called the New Culture Movement. Could you talk uh, just, just a touch about the New Culture Movement and, and how it interacted with May 4th? And, and, then, and then I'd like to take us forward and, and start talking about the legacy of May 4th. Absolutely. Failed Republican state, nobody mentioned Mississippi, and particularly not on the Hoover Institution podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> now, we are talking here about a republic, which was actually Asia's first republic, set up in 1911 on the overthrow of the last emperor, who was, of course, just a boy of, of five years old at the time. People who've seen Bernardo Bertolucci's movie back from 1987 uh, will remember that being portrayed rather you know, gloriously in that, in that particular film. But around that period was a very strong sense, particularly amongst China's writers, political thinkers, intellectuals, that some new way of thinking about the future was needed. And so we've talked briefly about the May 4th incident itself, what happened on that day. But surrounding it, really, even before that incident happened, that's from about 1914, 1915 onwards, you get a whole variety of people who basically put forward very radical, very innovative ways of thinking about not just particular political events of the day, but China's wider culture itself. What do I mean by that? Well, to put it very basically, but I think usefully, one of the driving ways of thinking was the idea that Confucius, the political philosopher perhaps most associated with Chinese thought for over 2,000 years, the, uh, the thinker who embodied ideas such as harmony, hierarchy, uh, obligations between um, superiors and inferiors, all of that, had basically brought China down to a very dark place. The idea that this, uh, this sort of rather scholarly but hierarchical way of thinking had prevented China from modernizing was very widespread. So, for instance, Lu Xun, regarded today quite possibly as China's greatest modernist author, writer of fiction, wrote a short story called Diary of a Madman, still one of the most famous short stories in, in China today. Every schoolboy, schoolgirl would, would read it even today. And it basically uses the metaphor of cannibalism to describe Confucianism. In other words, mm. the idea that eating people, you know, the most horrific act you can think of, was essentially a metaphor for a people-eating culture that China was wishing upon itself. So this idea for the most radical that China's traditional culture had to be overthrown and replaced with something new, and modern and Western became very kind of notable at the time. It should be added that other thinkers, people like the journalist Zoltau Fern, argued that Confucianism should not be rejected, but adapted. But nonetheless, the feeling that China needed a new way of thought was very central to the new culture of that time. And that's one of the reasons that that term became widespread. So the May 4th movement, as you mentioned, is it's an, an event 
on the 4th of May, but it has a long afterlife. I mean, first as an afterlife in, in the weeks and months afterward, but you argue in, in a bitter revolution that it actually has an afterlife throughout the 20th century. Um, probably most notably, of course, are the claims of the Chinese Communist Party that from the the flames of the May 4th movement, they emerged. But can you talk a little bit about that as well? Why Why do people still remember May 4th? What happened through the 20th century? And also, really, was it the birthplace of the Chinese Communist Party? So first of all, why do people remember it? What does it symbolize? Well, there was something clearly very affecting about the image, as well as the reality, of course, of the demonstration on that day. This idea of, you know, thousands of young people making their way to the symbolic and literal center of their nation's capital, Beijing, to protest about what they saw had become of their country. And this idea, this image, reoccurred often in very, very different circumstances. So to give one very example, 20 years after that date to the day, 4th of May 1939, was when China's wartime capital in the war against Japan, the city of uh, Chongqing, known in the West at that time as Chungking, was being bombed repeatedly by Japanese uh, terror raids who were trying to essentially firebomb the city into submission. And Lao Shu, one of the stalwarts of the new culture movement, one of, another one of China's great modern writers, wrote a piece called The Real May 4th at that time, in which he argued uh, that even if the city was being burnt to the ground, the spirit of May 4th, the spirit of patriotic resistance to foreign imperialism would never be beaten down. And he drew very much on that May 4th, <coughs> excuse me, he drew very much, for, uh, very much on the symbolism of that May 4th date to actually make that point quite uh, quite clearly. But May 4th also could be seized and distorted in various other ways. So today, many people at the top levels of the Chinese Communist Party would argue that the single most important thing that emerged from the May 4th era was the birth of the Chinese Communist Party. And indeed, the chronology seems to work quite effectively on that. So 1919, you have the demonstration. 1921, just two years later, is when small groups of young uh, thinkers studying Marxism basically decide to form what becomes the first incarnation of the Chinese Communist Party. But during that time, they were just one of a series, or one of a range of different ways of thinking about how the future might be taken forward. There was nothing inevitable at the, about the, at the time about the rise to power of the communists. And this became very evident later in the century during the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, perhaps the single most uh, savage, the single most inwardly turned and vicious uh, part of Chairman Mao's period of rule, when, as is quite well known but worth remembering, China's youth were essentially turned against the party itself by the chairman, uh, by, by Chairman Mao. Now, it's less well known that if you look at the rhetoric and the language that's used by the Communist Party in the 1960s to inspire the youth to carry out the Cultural Revolution, it is very much phrased in the idea that actually the ideals of that earlier May 4th movement and people like Li Xun who come from it have been betrayed by the Communist Party and that to repurify the party, you have to go back to those ideas using youth, using their patriotic um, 
instincts to actually forge a new future in which the past is thrown out and abandoned. So that was one of the ways in which the story of the party coming to power really bumped out of the way the much bigger and I think in some ways much more um, true to life story of how it was actually new ways of thinking about politics more broadly in China that really characterized the May 4th, uh, May 4th period. Communism was certainly mm-hmm. one of those paths, but it was just one. So we, uh, as we mentioned, of course, we're talking about this because just a few weeks ago was the centenary um, throughout the decades. And you noted some of the occasions, the, the the actual anniversary of the date was seized upon, certainly by the party to talk about uh, its revolutionary role and, and what it, you know, its its place in Chinese history. What happened this past month? How was how was the May 4th movement celebrated on the 100th anniversary of its occurrence? Well, one of the fascinating and frankly very dispiriting things about that incredibly important anniversary, 4th May 2019, was that in China it was commemorated hardly at all. Uh, I mean, I do know that there was university, which of course, as I mentioned, was uh, the uh, the heartland of the movement and many of the students who demonstrated demonstrated 100 years ago, came from there. And so I think the feeling was probably they couldn't really let the moment go entirely unmarked, but certainly the conference was not prominent and it was not uh, wide scale. Um, Outside China, there have been a certain number of events that have marked it. I was actually um, over in Bangkok just, um, you know, uh, about three or four weeks ago, in late April, in fact, uh, taking part in a symposium at one of the universities there about the May 4th movement. I've also seen that there have been events in the United States. And, of course, we had a uh, May 4th centenary lecture here in Oxford, although uh, because of the timing uh, of a weekday, it had to be on the May 6th. But we we made (laughs) sure we did mark it. It was actually given by Professor Klaus Milhan of uh, Berlin University, an extremely... uh, Uh, interesting piece of work. But within China itself, nope, very little mentioned. And of course, the reason for that is that that legacy of free thinking, of pluralist thought, which I think is very central to the movement, simply doesn't wash. All we had was one statement by Xi Jinping, by the president of China, the general secretary of the party, who did talk in a fairly standardized way about the May 4th movement as the point of origin of his party, the Chinese Communist Party. But beyond that, there really was no very wide commemoration. So we're moving very quickly towards the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square incident slash massacre. Um, Was that one of the reasons that the centenary of the May 4th movement in 1919 was so underplayed? Are are the two connected in the minds of the uh, of the Communist Party today in the government? And is there a fear that uh, you can once again see some type of of student radicalism, which raises the larger question as we look forward to Tiananmen? How is it that China has avoided a reemergence of a democracy movement over what is now nearly a third of a century? Absolutely. And I think we have to talk about the Tiananmen Square killings. We, we do not yet know one day no doubt archives will be opened exactly what the death toll was but most responsible uh, accounts place the number certainly in the high hundreds low thousands but you know very very significant numbers so that should not be forgotten it is of course not covered in you know in any detail whatsoever in in china itself it's very hard to find any mention of the the incident these days although it is still commemorated in hong kong but even that's become a little trickier but it's it's still there in the public public sphere so that's the one part of the prc where it can still be discussed Mm -hmm. Now, 
we can say that in the, let's say, 25 to 30 years, uh, or the 30 years since then, the majority of that period has been one where, to the surprise of many, in 1989, the party has managed to regroup, recover, and in many ways actually almost smooth over that aspect of the past because they um, uh, have been able to tell a different sort of narrative to China as a whole. And that has essentially been the narrative which we see coming out of China today, the idea that China is a country that has a different sort of economic model that has enabled it to take millions of people out of poverty, that has created first an export-oriented behemoth in the 90s and 2000s, and now, of course, is becoming something different again, a cyber-enabled artificial intelligence superpower with a new type of authoritarian rule. And in that context, mass demonstrations, student activism, this is all totally off the agenda. Now, I would have said, maybe even a year or two ago, that actually the party had had quite a lot of success in getting the younger generations in China today, the, the you know, the 18 to 30-year-olds, who of course have never really heard about this incident if they live in China because there's no coverage of it, to essentially focus on much more individualistic and you might almost say consumerist goals. In other words, get a good degree, graduate, get a job, get a car, get an apartment, you know, the kind of middle-class dream that you see uh, around the world. But right. And for many people, that is, I have to say, still you know, very much at the, the center of what they do. There are a lot more students in China, as in the US and, and Britain, no doubt, studying business than there are studying history. But in the last few months, one of the most interesting phenomena that's emerged, has been covered by reporters such as Yuan Yang of the Financial Times, is the emergence not of young Democrats or Democrats in the kind of liberal sense of the, the word that you might have associated with 1989, but even more perhaps unusual, the rise of new young Maoists. In other words, Hmm. campuses like Peking University, like Tsinghua, in other words, the same schools, the same universities, the same top institutions, young people aged in their teens and 20s who basically want to seize back what they see as the mantle of Mao and talk about things like workers' rights. You know, they're saying, why does the capitalist miracle that we've had in China that's created, you know, so much wealth nonetheless still exploit workers in factories? You know, what, what is the story behind that? Shouldn't the Communist Party be doing more for them? And what we've seen is that these young Maoists who are actually putting Mao's face on their T-shirts and on their you know, decals and stickers being put around are being taken away, rounded up, basically either silenced or held under arrest. So it's almost as if 30 years on, the threat is not so much the fear of liberal democracy, which, sad to say, probably doesn't have huge numbers of advocates in China today, but the fear of a threat from people who want to take the most iconic figure of the revolution, Chairman Mao himself, and reorient him for a new generation in a way that the current Communist Party clearly finds very, very worrying. When was the last time there was a a slight Mao boom and resurgence? You you write a little bit in uh, a bitter revolution, and I think it was the uh, the, the early nineties, was it not? That's right. Um, in the nineties, you have coming to perhaps sort of retirement age that first generation of men and women who were young during the Cultural Revolution, and during that period, you had a short but noticeable phase of what became known as a sort of Mao craze or kind of enthusiasm for for Mao. So examples of this would be, for instance, I mean, literally restaurants opening, very shishi upmarket restaurants in Beijing, which actually had cultural revolution themed waiters and food, you know, quite simple peasant fare, but obviously at the highest of prices. And the waiters served in those uh, serving in those kind of gray or blue baggy serge costumes and slogans such as serve the people being put up 
upon uh, oh, red God. banners around the uh, around the side. That that lasted for a while, but. One shouldn't think of it simply as you might in the West as kind of kitsch. It's, it's not the same as, for instance, those, those people who set up those kind of East Germany nostalgia restaurants in Berlin in the, in the 90s. This was also partly about a sort of rebuke, a kind of ironic rebuke to the idea of consumerism in, in the 90s and beyond in China. And people by eating in a very consumerist way, but with the values of that earlier Maoist period, were trying to send a sort of mixed signal, I, uh, I think. Now that that, uh, that that great vignette, which of course immediately I think to a Western mind brings up the, the the concept of the, or at least the thought of the triumph of capitalism. But you've noted it was a rebuke. Um, brings us to another uh, comment that you make in uh, an observation that you make in a bitter revolution. And, and I want to uh, remind uh, those who are listening. First of all, it is an, it is a wonderful book. Uh, if if you can find it, I don't know if it is it still in print, Rana. Uh, should still be in print. Thank you for, for saying that. Mission should should be available from Amazon. I would hope. I can. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's an Oxford so. yep. Oxford University Press. Oxford University Press. It's, uh, a, it's a paperback. That should be should be easily available. I hope. I'm, I would sure, actually... I'm sure you can get a bootleg copy from a website in China. Uh, if, 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 if so, you'll be doing quite well since, of course, uh, there is a chapter about uh, the 1989 movement, which I think means that it's probably, as they would say, unsuitable for publication. In the PR. <laughs> or they just ripped that part out. Um, I mean, I, I, I found it so compelling that I, I'm, I'm going to make a public plea that you consider updating it, which, of course, all authors, you know, hesitate ever, you know, tremble at the thought of having to do that because it was written. You wrote it in 2004. So it's the 15th anniversary of your your own book. And you have a line in there that uh, basically you, you describe China as, quote, a corporate semi-capitalist state fueled by nationalism, unquote. That's on page 13. Uh, if you if you have your own copy handy, right? Um, I should actually that... have it here with all the posted notes, but I, I will trust you on that, Misha. Your page referencing is probably much more efficient than mine. That, that sounds <laughs> correct to me. Yeah. So, so does that description still hold up? A corporate semi-capitalist state fueled by nationalism, or has China changed? Did China change under Hu Jintao and current leader Xi Jinping? I mean, how would you describe China today? I would say that I would stick to pretty much every single one of those words, but I would add one more. So is it semi-capitalist? Um, uh, you wrote yes, semi-capitalist. Semi-capitalist. And I might change the phrasing because actually I think it's capitalist. You know, I think the accumulation of capital and the use of it is, a, is absolutely the center of what China does. But what it is not is um, free market capitalist. So, right. uh, you know, there are plenty of arguments. We probably won't have them here. And I know you have brilliant colleagues at Hoover who argue about varieties of capitalism and they could come into this. But, you know, the idea that it's a top-down command economy in a kind of classic uh, Stalinist style is clearly no longer the case. So I'd stick to that. It's still a nationalist state. Uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about the increasing importance of the idea of Chinese nationalism as part of the mixture. But the word that I would add to it is technologically driven, because I think in 15 years, one of the most notable changes is that China has gone online and the party has gone online with it. And in fact, it's probably driving that presence. So the idea that you would have, for instance, today's um, so-called social credit system, which again, many may have heard about from the news and, and read about, in which more and more of the big databases that China has, both at state and private level, and this could be anything from uh, your uh, record as a good citizen or a bad citizen in the uh, uh, state records to your record as a good or bad debtor, depending on whether or not you're, you're, you paid your credit cards, as, it, as in Western countries, 
um, all comes together. And the ability of China both to operate at a very high level of technological capability, along with, of course, having no freedom of information or privacy um, laws uh, assured by the Constitution, mean that that data is available to turn Chinese politics and society in very different directions from what one would assume you'd have in a liberal society. That is a big change since 2004. And therefore, I, I, I think in a future version of the, of the book, which I'll, I'll have to have you contact my editor to try and suggest that <laughs> as a, a next stage, I, I would certainly reflect on that more broadly because I think it's a, it's, it's a fundamental change in the way that China operates. So let me bring you back, though, to one of the other terms in that in that description, which is nationalism. Now, what a lot of the narrative in the book is driven by uh, the seesawing back and forth. Um, and in fact, first of all, the subtitle of the book is China's struggle with the modern world. And a lot of the narrative in the book is is consumed with the seesawing back and forth of just how involved China should get with the world. And in fact, one thing that seems to link the May 4th movement in 1919 and the 1989 uh, Tiananmen Square demonstrations, which went for exactly a month before being crushed by the government, was an openness to the world, a, an internationalism, a, a sense that China needed to look outwards in order to find new models or be able to uh, get what it needed uh, to overcome the different types of, of, of problems that it was encountering, be it national weakness or be it uh, a repressive system uh, or the like. Now, today, we hear quite a bit about new nationalism of China under under Xi Jinping. Well, how do you how do you assess nationalism? And we're going through a, a period in the world where we're talking about populism and nationalism and the, the the combustible combination of them. How do you assess nationalism today? Is it is it a nationalism that is informed, as you write so much about enlightenment concepts uh, that that were very active uh, throughout the 20th century? Is it, as some have described, a Han nationalism, whatever that might be? Or is nationalism not that important today in, in Xi Jinping's China? No, I think you put your finger on it, actually, Misha. Uh, it is very important. Nationalism is absolutely uh, a key ideological factor in the shaping of China today. And I think actually I would say it has been for at least you know 150 years, something like that. So mm -hmm. I think we have to get one element very clear, which is when we talk or when I talk about nationalism in China, I am not in any sense equating this with xenophobia. There is no doubt that there is such a thing as xenophobic nationalism, and there's no doubt that it gets manifested in China on occasions too. But the easy equation of the two, I think, sometimes covers over some necessary uh, complexities that are necessary to, to understand. What do I mean? When we think about nationalism, at its most basic level, we're talking about the ideology relating to China's nation and establishment as a nation state. In other words, the sense of shared identity, language, politics, political system, culture, history, all expressed through the idea of a nation, uh, a political entity in which the people themselves, rather than some supernatural or metaphysical body like the emperor, is regarded as the source of political legitimacy. And in that sense, the United States is a nation under God, I'm told, the United Kingdom and all sorts of other countries, too, are very similar in that sense. Now, the reason that I think that we should, at one level, actually be rather sympathetic and actually, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> 
The reason I think we should be rather sympathetic and in some ways rather understanding of why China has come to regard nationalism as so important is to look at the modern history, which I cover in Bitter Revolution, but I also cover actually in, in Forgotten Ally, the book about China's World War II that you uh, kindly mentioned at the, uh, at the beginning. China is a country which has had to form its idea of modern nationalism under constant battering the opium wars of the 1830s and 40s when Britain was trying to sort of bash into the country and sell opium, uh, the assaults from France, from the United States, from Britain, from Japan, a whole variety of different outside imperialist actors in the late 19th, early 20th century, and then culminating with the huge, titanic, devastating war against Japan, part of World War II, of course, between 1937 and 1945. So China's experience with the outside world was a very, very unhappy one for at least that half century to 70 years or or more and even if we tend to forget about that in the in the west certainly a few britons um, think about the opium wars i can assure you that people in china have not forgotten about it at all and understanding where the often prickly and defensive part of that that nationalism comes from is something that's worth our doing in terms of historical awareness where i think we do have to be more critical and that is something that we do see manifest in the present day, is the idea that nationalism is just one thing. There's only one way of being Chinese, and that furthermore, the only way meaningfully to be Chinese is to associate yourself with the current ruling party. And that, I think, is a very restrictive way of understanding how nationalism works. One of the lines that I use in another book, in fact, uh, China very short, Modern China, Very Short Introduction, is the line that China is a plural noun. And I think that if you go to China and if you wander around, you will see how that idea of Chinese nationalism has all sorts of very different things in it. Uh, you know, Southerners who have a culture that is very much oriented towards the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Northerners who perhaps um, are uh, topographically more associated with the Gobi Desert. A whole variety of different ethnic and religious groups. There are Chinese Christians, Chinese Muslims, Chinese uh, Jews, in fact, very early Jewish community uh, in, uh, in China emerged uh, um, long before some of those in, in Europe. So that's a very long association as well. There are Chinese atheists, there are Chinese communists, there are Chinese uh, liberals, there are Chinese Democrats. All of these things are all meaningfully and productively part of a wide-ranging and generous view of what Chinese nationalism can be, making it a positive force that says, like the best nation-states around the world, we are confident in ourselves, we don't think that we're better than any other country, but we think we're every bit as good, to steal a line actually from the Scottish National Party who operate here in the, in the UK. Now, at the moment... I think we see far too much of the defensive side of Chinese nationalism and the side that argues that it's exactly equated with the Chinese Communist Party only and not enough of that inclusive, chilled, relaxed, warm, embracing type of Chinese nationalism, which could just as easily exist and I think is a perfectly plausible and desirable endpoint for a country that, unlike 150 years ago, is not under siege from the outside world, is prosperous, is the second biggest economy in the world, has a great track record on all sorts of economic and technological stories to tell the world, and should actually kind of sit back, chill, and let the world embrace it, rather than constantly trying to uh, get into a situation where uh, it seems to be about, about confrontation. Well, I'm interested in your, your use of uh, the term pluralism, because again, uh, in the book, you uh, refer repeatedly to the fact that 
China had a had a great deal of pluralism in in the 20th century. I mean, w- one of its failures, the the fatal failing of both the nationalist leadership under Chiang Kai Shek and then under Mao. In fact, you said was that it could not institutionalize difference, that it could not allow for expression of pluralism. But the whole point of May Fourth is that there was a, a a flowering of different views on on gender issues, on uh, uh, educational issues, on economic issues, obviously on political issues about how to form the state and form society. Uh, and you just mentioned this this concept of pluralism again today, but so many of those voices are are not being heard in China, correct? I mean that that is is this a state uh, that despite let's say the 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 ground condition of being pluralist as you as you indicate uh, is more restrictive under Xi Jinping is that is that how you see it is is it a state that is first of all more intellectually isolated from the world under Xi Jinping uh, is it a state that has any hope for allowing these pluralistic voices at some time in the near future to come out or is it becoming more stultifyingly Xi Jinping's version of Chinese communism and nationalism. Oh, I think there's lots of hope of pluralist voices coming out if, as you very perceptively point out, Nisha, the circumstances, the ground conditions are right. Because I think those very, very long-standing and actually I think in many ways very culturally Chinese ideas about different philosophical systems debating with each other, which happened way back in you know the early uh, – uh, the ancient period, you know, parallel, parallel with the ancient Greek philosophers you had in China, the likes of Mencius, Confucius, Xunzi, uh, Han Feizi and others, all taking very different views on the ideas of governance and how it operated. But sticking with the more modern period, I think that the recent history of China – and again, going back to history – even of the last 100, 150 years, I think is very instructive on this. China held its first multi-party democratic election in 1913, uh, just after the um, overthrow of the last emperor. Uh, it was actually one that managed to successfully uh, elect uh, various politicians of the, of the new Kuomintang Nationalist Party, amongst others. It didn't work as a system because then the kind of militarist um, warlord uh, presence within China launched a series of, of coups and overthrew the system. But the point is that there was nothing inherently in China that meant that people couldn't understand how to vote and what pluralist politics meant at the time. It wasn't in any sense alien to the culture and the election itself went off rather successfully. Ditto in a slightly different way in 1947 right um, at a time when uh, another semi-multi-party constitution, very much dominated by the then Nationalist Party of Chiang Kai-shek but allowing a certain limited amount of pluralist uh, political voting within it. The election itself, again, went reasonably effectively. The problem was that China was in the middle of a vicious civil war and civil wars, history shows, in any place are not the best places for liberal, free-thinking and pluralist politics to settle well. So the continuous history of Chinese conflict through much of the first half of the 20th century, and indeed within Mao's China, much of much of the second half, have not provided a good seedbed for pluralism, but they have also not meant that it was not there to be found when needed. And I think you do have to look at how things have changed in the last five or six years. Xi Jinping has been, on the one hand, a leader who has wanted to take in hand a whole variety of social and political problems, which his um, peers certainly identified and and understood, uh, one of the most notable being the massive corruption that was roiling China through much of the uh, 2000s and which he came in pledging to uh, to deal with. And many people would argue that uh, whatever his tactics, and they've been pretty uh, hardline and uh, and hardcore, uh, 
ostensible corruption has been addressed on a pretty um, front uh, 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 open-ended kind of uh, kind of way by by Xi Jinping. But the price of that has been in part the real, visible, and explicit pushback against the partial but noticeable pluralism that you would see in the media, in academia, in law, in the professions, let's say in the period leading up to the Beijing Olympics, so 2005, ahead of the Olympics in 2008, and maybe for four or five years after that. So, for instance, newspapers in China, the uh, Nanfang Zhong War, the Southern Weekend, became known in the late 2000s, early 2010s as one of the most daring uh, newspapers, along with Taishin, the financial newspaper, which would investigate corrupt officials or go and kind of look at poverty in the countryside or investigate stories that might make some people in power rather uncomfortable, but would nonetheless print stories that had real credibility about them. You know, investigative journalism was um, a recognizable um, phenomenon in the China of the time, just as we saw it in the in the May 4th era of the 1910s and 1920s. Most of that has now pretty much had the life squeezed out of it. And one, the reason for that, I think, is largely because Xi Jinping has made it very clear that, as he put it, the surname of the media in China needs to be the Communist Party. And by saying that, he's essentially making the point that the media is not there to stand as an objective or even analytical tool for wider society and life. It's there to serve the party's ends, and that's the be-all and end-all of it. So, yes, that space for free thinking, that space to actually have that wider conversation in China just now does seem to be much narrower than it was perhaps 10 years ago. Rana, this is this is extraordinary. Um, we we usually try to uh, to wind our our uh, podcasts up at about forty five minutes, um, and we're we're very close to that. I think we could go. I could go on with you about the history for hours. I think there are a lot of other questions people would want to ask you about more on the contemporary sets of of issues that you're seeing play out between China and the UK, China and Europe, and and of course China and the United States. Um, but let me uh, let me turn it over uh, to John because I know I think he has a, a few questions as well, uh, and uh, just to thank you for for walking us through this extraordinary uh, story of China in the 20th century. Well, Misha, thank you for that. And I have to say, anytime you want to talk Chinese history, come right back here, and we'll pick up that conversation. Outstanding, John. Well, over think, to you, uh, my friend. I think uh, Hoover's about to get billed by Misha for a transatlantic flight to visit Oxford. Sounds good to me. <laughs> what What's the billing code for that, John? Do we know that one? <laughs> Both of you welcome anytime. <laughs> I, I have visions of uh, Rana and Misha walking around like uh, <laughs> Sebastian and Charles Ryder and some of Brideshead Revisited remake around okay, Oxford. Okay, now, now, now this is leading us into dangerous territory, I have to say. Although uh, Christchurch is just a, uh, a 20 minute stroll away so i'm sure we can always find the time to, uh, to drop in there i'll bring the i'll bring the teddy bear <laughs> wonderful uh, I, i'm not bringing strawberries or champagne there are going to be people going to write in on the podcast that the, the bear's name is aloysius that's the only thing i remember He's indeed aloysius a very good catholic name <laughs> so um let me uh bring it to the president just actually uh, misha did a good job previewing what i was going to ask which was uh given you know all the uh, turmoil we're seeing in uh, relations between China and the rest of the world. Uh, do you think that um, the United States, the UK, and Europe have different interests with regard to China and so should pursue different policies? Or do they all kind of have a common interest and in that they should 
uh, sort of try to harmonize what they're doing. You see this, you know, you see conflict in everything from tariffs and trade to how to treat Huawei and their build out of 5G in all the different countries. Do you think we all have a common interest or are there different ones and, and are they successfully uh, developing and pursuing these interests? So it's a very good question, John. I would say that, yes, there are common interests. And actually, I would say that those common interests do include China as well. I mean, I'll say something about that that, that briefly. But I would say that, first of all, what we might call the liberal world, uh, in other words, uh, traditionally North America, Western Europe, uh, Japan, and so forth, have found themselves in a situation within the last two or three years where the common interests seem to be obscured or hidden by a variety of differences, many of which I think are artificial and actually very, very false. So in Washington, I'm, you know, I didn't spend um, that much time in, in D.C., but my sense of a lot of the language coming out of there is the idea of a new sort of Cold War building up. This is a language that we hear um, both Americans and Chinese use. And for those of us sitting in the middle on the, uh, the west coast of Europe, it can sound a bit alarming. It is a fact that China is going to be there as a major important regional power for a very long time and that we all, including in the liberal world, have to find ways to engage with that. And I think the language of confrontation is not always the most helpful way, or rarely actually the, the most helpful way to, uh, to to do that. That's a particular dilemma, I think, for the United Kingdom, where I'm sitting at the moment, because you may not be aware of this, but we're trying to go through a little thing called Brexit, which may have made one or two headlines. <laughs> in fact, as I sit here recording this, I don't know when people are listening to the podcast, but right now my news feed is going off with Prime Minister Theresa May may resign tonight, or she may resign tomorrow morning, or she may not resign design at all. So I don't know what state of leadership in my own country is going to be by the time this actually goes out on the uh, the podcast waves. But leaving aside the, the exciting, but in some ways rather um, epiphenomenal, that's a good Oxford word, epiphenomenal um, day-to-day politics, the bigger question of how Britain deals with China is one that is becoming more and more evident. And the Huawei business actually shows, I think, in microcosm, a much bigger dilemma that people feel, which is this. On the one hand, If the UK does end up Brexiting in some form that means it's going to have to start creating its own trade deals for the first time in 45 to 50 years, i.e. since since 1973, an entry to the old European community as it then was, then it's going to have to start making deals with countries like China or like China specifically. And this is going to be more difficult at a time when, first of all, it's not clear whether some of the issues to do with security presence in the Indo-Pacific, as we now come to call it, uh, the necessity to make sure that uh, the South China Sea issues, which China obviously has very extensive claims in the region, they're pushed back on by other actors in the region, that those are solved consensually, but also with a country like Britain perhaps taking taking a role, as some of our politicians want to do, but at the same time also wanted to sign off on these free trade deals. And then, of course, the flip side of that is that the current president of the United States has at least put forward a proposal, hasn't yet gone through, I know, but it's out there that maybe countries that sign free trade deals with non-market economies of a certain size, which I think probably means China, might find themselves not being in such a good trade deal with the United States. And the carving up of traditional allies in the way that sometimes the current administration in in Washington seems to do doesn't strike me as helpful either. So I think we would do very well in in your phrasing, I think, to remember some of those common uh, ideas, values and interests that we all have and start thinking about them rather than trying to uh, score, score points and pot shots off each other. Hmm. Interesting. So what um, what areas do you think there's uh, more divergence 
uh, or is it uh, – I, I like how you put the you – know, we're all part of the liberal world. But there are these tensions between the U.S. and Western Europe. But your, is it your point that they don't really – uh, they don't really come to the surface when it comes to China itself, that we all have this kind of common interest with regard to China and how to deal with it. Or or are there some fundamental differences between the way Europeans look at China and the way the U.S. Uh, look at China? I think there's a difference of emphasis. Mm. So, you know, it's worth pointing out that the European Union, broadly defined, has not been and is unlikely to be a serious security actor in the Asia-Pacific region uh, in the way that the United States clearly is, and I suspect will be for, for quite some period of time, despite the rhetoric we sometimes hear from uh, from President Trump. Um, that said, I think that there is convergence, which is emerging, perhaps it was, it was less visible even five years ago, but is now emerging in a whole variety of areas, particularly to do with things like technology. I think the feeling that there is a sort of fundamental set of decisions that has to be made about the next generation of technological development in 5G, AI, you know, whatever it might be, is a question in where, where the United States and Europe as a whole have a lot more in common than uh, necessarily differences. And I think that wouldn't have necessarily been the case previously uh, because um, there was probably more enthusiasm on the European side, for instance, to do technological tie-ups with China than would have been perhaps appreciated by the US. Now, although I think it's, it's fair to say the US perhaps speaks more robustly about tech tie-ups with China, there's no doubt that Europeans are also more reluctant or more wary about taking part in those sorts of link-ups. And an example of that is Germany, where actually there's been quite a a lot of soul searching, a lot of discussion about whether or not really major technology companies conceptually kind of bought up by uh, Chinese um, uh, capital funds, as has happened uh, quite frequently in the in the last two or three years, uh, in future, or whether there has to be more of a sense of either national or um, regional interest being operated when it comes to those sorts of purchases. In the same way that the Chinese themselves, I think you know perfectly understandably from their point of view, are very wary about allowing any significant foreign holding in companies or entities that they would consider uh, technologically um, important and potentially relating to their own national security. So in that sense, I think uh, that there's not a great deal of difference between the sides mm-hmm. because people you know, choose their own definitions uh, of what's important to them and then um, act accordingly. Well, Rana, thanks a lot. And I want to uh, I think that's a nice uh, place for us to end and that uh, even though we are sitting – actually, I'm the only one looking at the Pacific Ocean right now, but all three oh. of us are <laughs> at my office window. Two of us at the Atlantic. Yeah, I have a great view of the Golden Gate Bridge, and I, if I look through it, I think I can see some uh, Chinese uh, super carriers bringing in more goods before the uh, tariffs go up. But it, I think one thing it's uh, – you make a nice point, Ron, that brings us to a close here is that we're all uh, brought together by our interest in China. And I think uh, your uh, last answer is a fitting way to uh, end our podcast. And hopefully, at the very least, thank you for joining us this hour. And I hope we can have you back on again. And when we do, we, Rish and I will switch the relative proportions of our time. And I'm going to ask a lot of questions. And Misha will keep himself to a few. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> well, Ronnie, thank I, you very much again for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on. And I look forward to our uh, next conversation. Wonderful. Thank you, Rana. So, uh, everyone, thank you for joining us uh, for this episode of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's new podcast on uh, China and the Indo-Pacific. And you've uh, been here with our hosts, uh, me, John Yu, and Misha Austin, and our great guest today, Rana Mitter of Oxford University. 
So thank you very much, everybody, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.